You're listening to a Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. You know, every once in a while, you see a movie or you read a book or an article in a magazine or perhaps some advice in an advice column and you think, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I've just had that experience reading a new book that I am ordering everyone who listens to this show to go out and buy and read. It's called Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality by Christopher Ryan and Kakilda Jetha. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. It uh, comes out this week from Harper and basically the book argues that everything we have been told about monogamy being natural or human beings having, having evolved in monogamous pairs and the pair bond, everything we've been told about the evolution of human sexuality is wrong. I'm going to read just a little section from it. We are being misled and misinformed by an unfounded yet constantly repeated mantra about the naturalness of wedded bliss, female sexual reticence, and happily ever after sexual monogamy, a narrative pitting man against woman in a tragic tango of unrealistic expectations, snowballing frustration, and crushing disappointment. Living under this tyranny of two, as author and media critic Laura Kipnis puts it, we carry the weight of modern love's central anxiety, namely the expectation that romance and sexual attraction can last a lifetime of coupled togetherness despite much hard evidence to the contrary. Couldn't have said it better myself. I've tried to say it. I, I, I've clawed my way toward it a million times uh, in my column and on the podcast. I don't think people should make commitments they can't keep. If you make a monogamous commitment, you should keep it. I don't think people should extract under duress monogamous commitments that they know their partners are unlikely to keep. I believe that we need to be realistic about infidelity, realistic about our partners are going to be attracted to other people as we are ourselves, realistic about the fact that love means for many refraining from fucking other people. It doesn't mean that you don't want to fuck other people. But we idealize monogamy to this point where everyone who fails at it physically or just emotionally, everybody who fails at it by cheating or fails at it by wanting to cheat, feels like they're not truly in love, feels like their pair bond, their couple bond isn't worthwhile, isn't lasting, isn't true because they still want to fuck other people. We've pitted people against their own natures. We've destroyed relationships and marriages that might otherwise have survived Boredom survived a routine infidelity because we've elevated monogamy. We've put it up on this pedestal to our own peril and to the harm of our, our lasting and loving relationships. Before we get to your calls today, joining us by phone from Barcelona after the break, Christopher Ryan, one of the authors of Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Smitten Kitten, offering an amazing selection of products for your sex life. Enter Savage at smittenkittenonline.com for 20% off your purchase. I don't know how to start this interview with you, uh, Mr. Ryan, but by gushing. I, I understand that you're married to a woman, but where have you been all my life? <laughs> I've been trying to get your attention for the last couple of years. <laughs> I've been reading your book and screaming and yelling and jumping up and down. I feel so vindicated. 
by the research that you guys have done. Because for years I've been pointing out, just from observation, anecdotal evidence, that this monogamy shit is hard and doesn't work and makes people kind of miserable. And yet we're told it should come easily and naturally when we're in love. And a monogamous commitment is effortless where there's love. And you guys have demonstrated, you've proven that that is not true. That's that's our conclusion, yeah. What inspired yeah. you to write the book? To, I mean, really, to paint this bullseye on your backs, because you guys are going to get it from all sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're sort of expecting that. I guess what really got me into it was the whole Clinton-Lewinsky situation. So I, I was thinking, like, uh, how is it possible if men have had all the power, all the political, economic, even physical power since the beginning of time? How is it that the most powerful man in the world is being publicly humiliated for having a consensual sexual relationship with someone? It just didn't make sense. So that led me into um, reading evolutionary psychology. And for the first year or so after discovering evolutionary psychology, I I had the passion of uh, the convert, you know, I thought it explained everything. Luckily, at that time, I was living in San Francisco and I was working for an organization called, uh, a an, uh, nonprofit called Women in Community Service. And I was one of the only men who worked there. And uh, so I had a lot of uh, very intelligent, very outspoken women around me, and they helped me see that a lot of it made sense, but the depiction of female sexuality that's fundamental to evolutionary psychology really didn't make sense at all. And what is that picture? What is the picture painted of uh, women and uh, female sexuality? Well, that you say in the book that women are whores. That's what they're telling us. Our well, yeah, we say Darwin says your mother's a whore. <laughs> we don't say women are whores, but yeah, we we're more like women are sluts. Just like men, you know? <laughs> There's some stuff in this book that'll make people's heads explode, like the, the concept of masked paternity, that instead of, you know, women assuring, you know, trading sexual exclusivity for the assurance of paternity to men, that what was actually going on was women were fucking as many men as possible so that all the men in the tribe and in, in her group believed that that kid could be theirs. Right, right, which is something that uh, Sarah Hurdy writes about in several of her books on alloparenting and how, how it's actually much better for the child for several, a whole bunch of adults to believe that they have some stake in that child, that they've got some connection to the child on a deep spiritual level. And one of the so, things that you unpack in here that made my, my head explode was beliefs in, among certain tribes that a child is actually accumulated semen. Yeah, exactly. A big yeah, ball of exactly. spunk, a big crying whale, <laughs> bouncing ball of spunk. Cute, cute little ball of spunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what are the advantages that provides? We're guessing to say exactly what the advantages are, but there is research that shows that in these, these uh, societies that have this belief, children uh, that have several recognized fathers have a much better chance of surviving to adulthood than children that only have one recognized father. So we can uh, hypothesize about exactly how that happens, if it's that the, the several fathers um, provide more food to the child or protection or whatever it is, whatever sort of investment or care they give. So if uh, Or may, maybe even other people in the tribe, knowing that this kid is loved by four or five 
different men. You know what I mean? It doesn't even necessarily have to involve those men specifically. And you guys argue that this was the natural order thing, sort of a polygamous, polyamorous, uh, all for every, you know, all for all and all for one sex culture. When did it shift to this monogamous assumption? We argue that it shifted at the advent of um, agriculture, which is at most about 10,000 years ago. Because people don't understand how radically human life changed with the advent of agriculture. You know, as we explain in the book, even if you take the most restrictive definition of Homo sapiens, just the very last manifestation of our species, people who look exactly like us, whose bodies are like ours, whose brain architecture is like ours, who had fire, who had tools, who had language, and so on, that's 200,000 years. And agriculture is at most 10,000 years ago. And even as, as recently as 200 years ago, most of the people on Earth were still hunter-gatherers. Or I should say most of the Earth was occupied by hunter-gatherers uh, because their, their population density is much lower. You wouldn't say most of the people. But most of the Earth was still um, occupied by hunter-gatherers. And when you have hunter-gatherer societies, the whole society is oriented around the concept of sharing. And as we try to argue in the book very clearly, we're not saying these people are noble savages. We're not saying that they're better than we are or anything. We're, what we're arguing, and, and other people have argued, is that sharing simply makes more sense in a nomadic hunter-gatherer environment. Only when you have agriculture do you have accumulated land that's owned by people, you have livestock that's owned by someone, you have accumulated uh, harvest from the last season that has to be defended and, and parceled out. And so you, you get into a hierarchical political structure, you get a whole different economic system, you get different relations between people. So it changes from everything is shared to this is mine, get away from it. And how did it Defend happen me. that at that moment women became livestock Basically. Well, exactly, because at that moment, as you were saying earlier with the concept of partable paternity, it's not at all clear uh, to most people, especially pre-scientific people, where babies come from. If everybody's having sex and babies are, are arriving, it's not clear that anybody would really put two and two together and figure that babies came from sex. Why would they? So... Only when you have uh, domesticated animals do people really start to study the cause and effect of, of fornication and birth. And so you, first you have this connection. Okay, wait a minute. Sex causes birth. Then you have the concept of ownership, right? These animals are mine. This house is mine. And I want to make sure that when I die, they go to my kids. So what's the only way to make sure these kids are my kids? It's to control the woman's sexuality. Right? There are no DNA tests or any other way to tell. So that's when this, this uh, hunger to control female sexuality really entered human behavior. Before, when property is shared, and property wasn't really even an important concept in pre-agricultural societies, why would you care who a woman's having sex with? There's, there's no reason to care because there's no reason to be concerned about paternity because you don't have anything that you're leaving to your children. So care. your book argues that, you know, monogamy wasn't our natural state. We didn't evolve. We're, we're more bonobo than anything else. Uh, 
uh, than we yeah. than we care to admit. Sure. So, so where are you going with this? Like, we're bad at monogamy. It's an ill-fitting garment. You know, Clinton, Edwards, uh, Vitter, Ensign, Spitzer. <laughs> like, how many examples do we need endless. before? Yeah, it is endless because you know we're telling people to breathe underwater and they can't do it. Right. So, what are you arguing? Do we return to this? You know, all babies are the accumulated semen of all the men you can get your hands on. Obviously not, because of disease. What do you guys? What do you hope people take away from the book? Well, you know, when we pitched the book to uh, to publishers, a lot of the there was a lot of interest, and a lot of the publishers said, "Okay, let's just say I accept your argument. Now what?" That's what I'm you know, saying. Now was, what? Yeah, exactly. Now what? And that's the book they wanted, right? But what we said was, look, we can't write that book. And, and it would be wrong to write that book and, until we've published this book that lays out the argument, that lays out the science, and really mm, why we think we're right. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about what it means maybe down the road. But this book, you know, as, I don't know if you finished the book, but just at the end there's a sort of a section where we, we say, okay, this is how uh, these insights can, can be applied to people's personal lives a little bit. But we don't go into it much because it's very, as you know, it's very difficult to give advice to people about something so personal and so complex as their intimate relationships without knowing anything about them. Even if you do know them, it's still difficult. Um, so Don't you think it'll help well, people hope, just to know that the reason that they're falling short? That's exactly. That that's, they're not that's doing anything say. wrong, that it's their, it's their animal nature, it's their inner bonobo, and right. these ideas, these ideals that our culture has created about monogamy and faithfulness and fidelity are nice, but they're not very functional, and our own libidos and reptile brains are at war with them. And there's a, you know, people always say to me, well, but we're human beings, we can choose how to behave. And that's true to a certain extent, but, you know, our, our bodies and our, our essence rebels against decisions that run against our evolved nature. You know, you can choose to wear shoes that are too small for you, but your feet are going to bleed. You can choose to wear a corset, but you're going to pass out because you can't breathe properly. And mm-hmm. you know, we can choose to do all sorts of things to eat a high-fat diet and sit around on the sofa all day, but we'll get heart disease. You know, because the body and our, our, our essence is sort of uh, evolved for a certain kind of context, a certain uh, lifestyle. And the further we stray from that lifestyle, the, the more we pay in terms of mental health, physical health, and uh, psychological, emotional health. So, yeah, the, the ambition we have for this book is, is, I think, pretty humble, but also very important, which is that people give themselves a break, cut themselves some slack, and cut their partner some slack. And so there's a little, um, the script, the American script, loosens up a little bit and uh, maybe allows for a little more leeway in terms of uh, opening up relationships a bit. Because, you know, we're going to, as you said, we're going to be getting a lot of uh, criticism from pro-family kind of, you know, defend the traditional values types. But the thing is, I was talking to someone recently, and I'm sure you've, you've had this conversation as well, where someone says, you know, the reason I was able to stay married so long is that my wife let me uh, play around a little bit, or, vi- or the opposite. You know, my husband let me have mm-hmm. lovers. 
it actually promotes family stability to not take that so seriously. To not take monogamy so seriously. Yeah, exactly, or or infidelity. Oh my God, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm constantly (laughs) arguing that that if we're interested in preserving marriages and keeping families intact, we need to be less psychotic about never seeing anyone else naked ever again after you get married. That if we make some allowances for error, although I don't want to call it error, or straying uh, under certain controlled circumstances, the marriage and the relationship is likelier to survive over the long run. If the only option you have to ever have sex with anyone else ever again is ending the marriage, people will end or sabotage the marriage. As Newt Gingrich has demonstrated and Rush Limbaugh and, you know, all the rest of them. You know, these family defenders with their four wives. Sequential uh, polygamy is, is, in my book, not, not much, no more defensible than simultaneous polygamy. Do you know what I think the mistake so, we made is, you know, as marriage in the West became more egalitarian and farsi farsi, monogamy wasn't expected of men forever yeah, until about 1960, exactly. right? Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, people looked at the deal where men could do what they needed to do or wanted to do and women under, you know, pain of death, really, had to be monogamous. And they looked at that and said, that's not exactly fair, so we're going to renegotiate that deal. And instead of saying, okay, ladies, you now have the same deal men have, we went, men, okay, you now have the same deal we've always given the women. You're not allowed to have (laughs) sex with other people ever. And it's been a disaster. Exactly. Because men are no good at monogamy, and women aren't that much better at it. But instead of giving women the license men always had, we took the license away from guys. And look at the divorce rate. Yeah, and in my in my PhD dissertation, I called that the theory of assumed hypocrisy. You know that that there was an assumption of hypocrisy built into the marriage contract, mm-hmm. as you said, on the male side. And and you're right. Instead of making it just as loose on the woman side as it was on the male side, we tightened it up on both sides, and and people have been and now look know, at the sand falling apart. Yeah, look at the governor of South Carolina. So you're married. Yeah, you're going to get this question when your book tour starts. You guys monogamous? Uh, well, the the stock answer that we've worked out for that is that our relationship is certainly informed by our research, <laughs> but that the details. Oh my God, I'm going to start <laughs> describing my relationship in that way. When people ask me if my boyfriend and I are monogamous, my husband, I'm going to say our relationship is informed by Christopher Ryan's research. I'm going to let them work that out. Exactly. That'll force them to go buy the book, right? I'm going to force everyone I know to buy your book, and I want everyone listening to the sound of our voices to go buy your book, and I'm going to write about you in my column. You deserve a a, a huge and wide audience, if only to vindicate me. Thank you. (laughs) I'll take it. That's a good enough reason for me. Thank you so much for joining us, Christopher Ryan. Thank you. Talk to you soon. This is a 35-year-old straight woman from the Southwest, And I'm calling with kind of a question based on your general uh, training and experience, I suppose. I um, recently ended a relationship with somebody after about three years. Um, He is 39, going on 40. He um, kind of strung me along, I would say, for three years. He was never sure where it was going. He was never sure if he loved me or not. And because I'm sort of an idiot, I guess, I, uh, you know, stuck in there, keep thinking he was changing, um, yada, yada, yada. So my question is this. We broke up, well, really about four months ago, but we've been breaking up slowly but surely. 
ever since. And uh, we've recently just ended things fully, um, which means not sleeping together and not hanging out together anymore at all, um, about a week ago because he met somebody new. Um, it was pretty much inevitable that was the only way it was going to end because we both kept hanging in there. But now he tells me that he thinks he's sure about this person. Um, she is 10 years younger than him, at least. She is an intern in his office. But yet, after one date and a week, he says that he thinks he may be sure that uh, he could definitely love her. My question is, is that possible, even? After a man has been so equivocal for so long, is he just blowing smoke up my ass, or is he just talking himself into something so it makes more sense that he's not with me anymore? Um, and in your experience, like, how many people really end up with the rebound person? I mean, especially men who are getting older and probably facing a bit of a midlife crisis. Um, do you think it's possible that he could, like, marry this woman? You're asking me unknowable things. You're asking me to tell you exactly what's going on between his ears. I don't know. I can only speculate. You dumped him, and now he's saying hurtful things to you about his new girlfriend. Well, you pieced that together. How many people wind up you know, with the rebound person? Significant numbers of people wind up with the rebound person. You are listening to the voice of someone who wound up with the rebound person. I've been with the re- the, first, the rebound guy uh, for 15 years now, so I guess he was the one-ish or close enough, rounded him up, and he's the one. Only time will tell if she is indeed the love of his life, if he's not deluding himself. Frequently, people say, you know, many years out that they knew that this was the person. Even at the beginning of the relationship, they knew. They only say that, though, about people they're still with. People who break up with someone they had that feeling about don't 10 years later say, wow, I really knew that so-and-so was the one. I really felt that deep in my heart and I was wrong. They don't mention that, right? So if she's not the one, he'll shut up. He'll forget. He'll stuff those comments he made to you and maybe actual genuine feelings he had down the memory hall and move on to the next girl. You should stop talking to him. Stop obsessing about him. You were wrong to allow him to string you along. He was wrong to string you along. Obviously, you weren't exactly what he wanted. And and he clearly wasn't exactly what you wanted because you dumped his ass. He wouldn't have been out there looking at maybe the interns in the office if he wasn't officially dumped by you for cause because he couldn't make up his fucking mind. He couldn't commit. So you dumped him. And now he's moved on to somebody that maybe he feels differently about or maybe he's in a different place based on the life experience that you've provided him with. It's cold comfort, I realize. And now what you need to realize is every conversation you have with him about this new girl, about your relationship, is so much picking at your own scabs. Stop picking at scabs. Move on. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Smitten Kitten. Smitten Kitten has an amazing selection of products for your sex life. Whether you're single or with a partner, their non-toxic body-safe toys are the best quality products available. Shop their easy-to-navigate, secure website at smittenkittenonline.com or visit the newest Smitten Kitten location at 70 Broadway in Denver, Colorado. Take 20% off any order online or in-store with the code SAVAGE. Smitten Kitten, sex toys for everyday people. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old male, and I just ended a relationship of two years, 
and I'm really hurt because uh, we've only been broken up for a total of a week, and I feel like when we broke up, I wasn't able to get all my feelings out, and so I wanted to confront her, but I found out that the seven days we were broken up, she went to, she flew to another state, and she actually fucked another guy. I can't really put all the blame on her, but she made me, she led me to believe that I was her best boyfriend ever, and I didn't want to make things work out with her, but after finding this news out, I totally feel different. It, I obviously wasn't giving her, giving her what she needed. She, she left me and went somewhere else to find what I couldn't give her. And that just leaves me feeling really sad. And I don't know. I want to know your insight to why, what prompted her to do that. I wish she'd left a callback number because we're a little unclear as to whether you dumped her or she dumped you. I'm going to run with you dumped her because you say I just ended this relationship and she led me to believe that I was her best boyfriend ever. That sounds like something that maybe she said while you were dumping her. She was sad. Listen, the relationship's over. She can do what she wants. She can fuck who she wants. All of us grieve in our own way. I ended a relationship once and didn't leave the house for three months, even though I was the one that did the dumping. I was very sad. The guy dumped, went out, and sucked a million cocks. We all grieve in our own way. You've got to let it go. The relationship's over. The flying off to fuck somebody else kind of seals the deal, does it not? Even if you could get back together, there are unresolved issues. Perhaps this is evidence that she doesn't feel as strongly about you or about relationships or feels differently about sex and intimacy than you do. And so you're not compatible. You're not meant to be together. And rather than feel like this fucking somebody else is a betrayal of you somehow and your relationship somehow, a relationship that was over when she was fucking this other guy, just wash your hands of the whole thing. It's done. It's dead. It's gone. It's over. You're still heartsick. She's perhaps not heartsick or this is how she works her way through her heartsickness by sleeping with somebody else and putting some distance emotionally, physically, sexually between you two. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight female, and um, I'm visiting my sister. She lives with her boyfriend. And um, so the other day, I went to my friend's house. I had a few drinks. I was literally inebriated. I came home, and I didn't think anybody was home. And so um, I started masturbating. And um, when it came to the climactic point, um, all of a sudden, my sister's boyfriend walked in. My sister was not home, but he walked in and he said, what are you doing? And I looked at him and said, well, what do you think I'm doing? And I really think he was, like, standing there, like, trying to tell me, like, oh, hey, do you need a hand with that? And so I'm not really sure what to do about this. He did ask me, he was like, oh... I'm sorry, that's just stupid. Do you feel embarrassed? And I said, well, of course I feel embarrassed. And he goes, are you mad? I said, no, I'm not mad. But I'm just unsure how to deal with this because I, I don't, I, I mean, he's attractive and all, and it'd be nice to fool around, but he's my sister's man, and I have a man that I love. So 
I don't want to do that. So what should I do? Where the fuck were you masturbating? Is your sister living at pup tent with her boyfriend? He walked in and found you? Were you masturbating in the living room, the dining room, on the kitchen fucking table? I think you need to masturbate when you're at somebody else's house. You have a right to masturbate, even fuck other people. But in a spot where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, a spot where someone's not going to walk in and find you. So what do you do about this? Well, it depends really on what he wants to do, what he's willing to risk, what you want to do, what you're willing to risk. The risks are, assuming everyone else in this little story, your sister, your partner, your boyfriend, all expect a monogamous commitment from you guys. There's no negotiated open relationship rules at play here. You fucking him could fuck your relationship with your sister. It could fuck his relationship with his girlfriend. It could fuck your relationship with your boyfriend. It could fuck up a lot of things. So what do you do here? Well, it depends on what you're willing to risk. I don't think that you should risk all of those relationships just because you think your sister's boyfriend is hot. Because, you know, boyfriends come and go, particularly at the stage of life you're in. Whereas your relationship and your connection to your sister is eternal. And fucking your sister's boyfriend without her okay, and I really doubt you'd be able to get her okay, so I wouldn't even ask, means you're going to pay a pretty high price just to get it off with this guy. So what should you do? I think you should masturbate in private, and I think you should stay the hell away from your sister's boyfriend. And I say that as someone who's not a huge fan of monogamy, but I'm also not a huge fan of stupidity. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling regarding the um, frat boy, um, the gay frat boy who um, the caller wanted him to come out and badgered him about it, and eventually he didn't come out. But I was just curious. I, I was, I was interested in how adamant you were that the caller was doing the right thing, and and it made me a little uncomfortable because I thought I, I understand that it's important to be honest, um, but. Coming out seems like such a big and personal thing that maybe it needs to be respected a little bit that people might just not be ready. I don't know. It just seemed to me like to put a whole lot of pressure on someone to do something that big before they're maybe ready to do it is, is and encouraging that might be um, maybe harmful. I'm just curious why you were so adamant um, about it, not knowing anything about this guy's um life or, or what he felt was necessary or anyway, I'm just curious. Um, is it always, should you always be that adamant about someone coming out? Coming out is a big thing. It's not a personal thing, particularly when you're involving other people in your sex life and your intimate life, you are pulling them into the closet, perhaps against their will. Setting all that aside, you seem very sensitive to the pressure I've put on this boy to come out. What you aren't conscious of, perhaps because you're a heterosexual, is the tremendous pressures this frat boy is on to stay in the closet. The pressure he's getting perhaps from his faith, from the culture, from society, from his fellow frat boys, from the expectation that everyone carries around that everybody else until they open their mouths and say that they're gay is straight. The pressure that closet cases get from the gay men that they interact with, from the openly gay men that they want to sleep with to come out, in no way compares to the pressure they're under to stay in. Sometimes people who are closeted are closeted because they're cowards, are closeted because 
no one's given them a kick in the ass that they need and that they will be grateful for down the road. Being out is the price of admission for having an adult gay sex life. Being out is the price of admission for having a boyfriend. It's the price of admission for getting your ass fucked by healthy, ethical, together, smart, already out people. Gay people should constantly be pressuring people who aren't out to be out because things only change for the better when people are out. You look at the polling data that shows that people who know people that are openly gay are much likelier to support gay marriage, much likelier to support gay people adopting and having children, much likelier to support hate crimes legislation, much likelier to support uh, workplace protections for gays and lesbians because they finally know somebody who's gay. It's important not only to each of us who's gay as an individual to be out for ourselves. It's important for us to be out for each other. We have a responsibility to be out for the gay people who are coming after us. We have a responsibility to be out for the gay 13-year-olds who aren't out yet and to set an example and to help make the world a better, more welcoming, more tolerant place for them by coming the fuck out already. You don't want to be out? Good. Take the dick out of your mouth and put the dick down and back out of my apartment. That's what this guy's boyfriend needs to tell him. A gay person owes it to himself and all other gay people to be out. If you don't have the courage to be out, you don't have the courage to suck the dick. Put it down, back away. It sounds like your heart's in the right place. I don't mean to beat you the fuck up. But often there's this hand-wringing from straight people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to issues around the closet. That the sympathy with closet cases, oh, it's a deeply personal decision and oh, it's so hard and waka, waka, waka. You know what? It's not that hard. It's not that hard to tell the truth. It's not that hard to be honest. Individual circumstances may vary. Somebody with fundamentalist Christian batshit parents, if one of the Phelps kids is gay, that's going to be hard to come out. Individual circumstances may vary. But you know what? It isn't harder now, no matter what your circumstances are now, than it was for the guys who were coming out in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It can't be harder. The path has been blazed for these guys. Now when you're an adult and you're closeted and you want your closet accommodated, you want people to feel sorry for you because, well, oh, you're on the cross and, oh, it's so hard and you're living a double life. Boo-fucking-who. You straight people fall for that bullshit. That, you know, object of pity, closet case, horse shittery, because you don't know what you're talking about. Again, I don't mean to beat the fuck up on you. Just want you to understand that we live in a time when, for the first time in really centuries, a space has been created for openly gay and lesbian people to live their lives with a little bit of integrity. People have paid with their lives to create that space. Folks owe it to those people and to themselves if they're going to enjoy the fruits of this hard-won space. They're going to live in this space to pay the minimum dues, which is to be out already. And if you have a boyfriend, you're old enough and engaged enough to be out. And your boyfriend has a right to demand that you come out and live with some integrity and some honesty and put some pressure on you. A lot of people don't come out until there's pressure that counteracts the pressure to stay in the closet. And it's important and it's valuable. And we gay people have to hold the closet cases to account. They want to sleep with us. Fuck them. You want to fuck us? You want to fuck openly? You want to openly? Go find another closet case. God knows they're out there. Go sleep with Ted fucking Haggard. 
You want a gay boyfriend? Then you need to be a gay guy publicly because having a boyfriend is a public act. Hi, Dan. I just finished listening to Podcast 190, and this is a comment in reference to the question from the guy who was worried that he had a pornography addiction. In general, I agree with the advice you gave him. I mean, it doesn't sound like what he's describing is addiction. It sounds like he's kind of got some you know, previous misconceptions about how much, you know, he's supposed to actually use porn. And if the sex life with his girlfriend isn't suffering, um, then it's probably not an addiction. And he probably just needs to have sort of an honest talk with his girlfriend about, you know, that he likes porn and that it does something for him. And maybe she would like it too. But the part of your question that I have to disagree with is you stated that, or at least implied that you couldn't become addicted to pornography because it was a behavior and not a drug. Um, I happen to be a counseling student who works in an addictions clinic, and I have to say that at least according to the American, uh, you know, psychiatric and the American Psychological Association, that would be an inaccurate statement. Um, modern psychology, modern psychiatry does recognize addictions um, that occur without a substance, you know, addictions to pornography, addictions to the Internet, addictions to sex. Um, which are actually which are technically classified as addictions, even though it's obviously not a biological addiction. Um, anything that has the potential to create large amounts of pleasure and activate the dopamine reward center in the brain, at least with our with our current understanding, can create an addiction, just not the same type of an addiction as a drug. So I just wanted to you know throw that out there to you. I know you don't necessarily always have the highest you know, regard for psychology and psychiatry, but at least according to the APA, um, to state that he could not become addicted to pornography because it's not a drug would not be an accurate statement. I'm calling about the lesbian in episode 191 who wondered if made her trans because she wanted her girlfriend to suck her plastic, silicone, whatever, um, cock. Um, that's not weird at all. I am a very girly girl, and I like to think about having a cock and fucking my girlfriend with it. I don't think that's weird. That sounds pretty lesbian to me. That doesn't mean that I want to have a real one, um, and it doesn't mean I don't like being a female. Um, it just means that lesbians are super lucky because we can imagine these things and have fun with dildos and have all the fun of being a woman with a woman, too. So, sounds like fun. Doesn't sound weird. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is Dave in New York. Um, I was just listening to episode 190. And uh, feedback um, for the 28-year-old with the 30-year-old husband with the uber-low libido. Um, possibility exists that Sparky, or lack of Sparky, could have a... Um, very low testosterone level. Didn't happen to me, but uh, a good friend of mine, same sort of situation, um, you know, and, and they tried all kinds of things. Uh, she tried, you know, coming home and, you know, the surprise blowjob and waking up in the middle of the night and all kinds of crazy shit um, and um, sending him pictures and, and just couldn't get him sparked up. Uh, and, you know, meanwhile, the rest of us thought he was out of his goddamn mind because uh, his wife is hot. Um, and then uh, he had a physician who had the wherewithal to be intelligent enough to do a full panel and found that, holy shit, his testosterone level was in the toilet. And amazingly enough, uh, he goes and he gets 
a shot every few weeks, and vitamin T makes him a very happy boy and makes her a happier girl and makes the rest of us kind of jealous that, you know, well, I mean, I'm a, I, I, part of me will admit that I looked at this situation and said, hey, it would be okay for me, but sexually, at least, now they're compatible. So while I agree with you that they should have established this, this going in and it would have given the rest of us a crack at her ass, the reality is that, you know, he could have a testosterone deficiency. And vitamin T made him a very happy boy. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you all for your calls, comments, and questions. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. You download us every week at thestranger.com slash savage. I blog every day. It's log.thestranger.com where you can read the Savage Love Letter of the Day. Or you can have the Savage Love Letter of the Day delivered directly to your phone by going to the iTunes store and buying the Savage Love app. A buck ninety-nine. I'm worth it, every penny at least. And you read Savage Love, my advice column in print every week in alternative weekly newspapers across the United States and Canada, including the Georgia Strait up in Vancouver, British Columbia. 206-201-2720, that's the number. Give us a buzz. Me and the Tech Savvy Atris Youth will be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.